early 1970s, Montreal was the uh, bank robbery capital of the world. The Irish gang or the West End gang controlled the dogs. But you sort of drop the gates and say it's us against the world. And so getting convictions and you know getting any kind of information about the West End gang was virtually impossible. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They are the mob who took control of Canada's lucrative cocaine trade while proudly displaying their Irish roots. The West End gang started life as a prolific bank robbery mob who traded on their status as outsiders in French-speaking Montreal. But when they struck a deal with the Columbia's Cali cartel, the Irish mob became Canada's kings of coke. Today I am speaking with the Toronto Sun's Brad Hunter and my colleague Eamon Dillon about the rise and fall of the West End gang. You're listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Brad, um, we're here. We used to have a famous ad in in the 1990s uh, for a product called I Can't Believe It's Not Butter. Um, So we're doing the I Can't Believe It's Not Nicola Crime World podcast today. She's not uh, not available, but it's myself and Eamon to add a bit of glamour. But Brad, we're just going to talk about, um, like Ireland has been famous for importing a lot to North America, a lot of good stuff. But one of the uh, one of our, our less well-known uh, exports was the West End gang. Um, can you give us a bit of background uh, to where, where this gang really originally formed? Sure. The West End gang is uh, sort of a bit of an anomaly. It's, uh, you know, in a largely French city, uh, policed by largely French speaking cops. Uh, the, the West End gang uh, comes from an area of Montreal uh, called uh, Point St. Charles. And uh, it's a very, very Irish neighborhood, very poor neighborhood. But one of the things is, is that the neighborhood seemed to produce some of the sharpest criminals in the in the knife drawer. Uh, they, they became experts at uh, break ins, at safe cracking, at, you know, driving getaway cars. And, you know, so they, they formed, became you know, there'd always been a loose confederacy of Irish hoodlums in Montreal, but they kind of formed and came closer together uh, in the nineteen the nineteen fifties, and uh, they also were you know championship bank robbers in the in uh, nineteen early nineteen seventies. Montreal was the uh, bank robbery capital of the world. I think there was three times as many bank robberies in Montreal as there uh, was in Los Angeles at the, dur- during the same time period. I, bet I read one, it, one incredible statistic that they had uh, 51 bank robberies in the first half of 1969 in Montreal alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, well, they were, they were very good at it. They were you know, well-planned, and they got away with it a staggering amount of, uh, of times. And they would blend in to a neighborhood that somewhat owed its uh, owed its fealty to them and and uh, they were the gangsters took care of uh, people in the neighborhood and the neighborhood took care of the gangsters nobody said anything um, into this mixture 
comes uh, a guy named uh, Frank Dooney Ryan. But you couldn't uh, uh, you he, couldn't get a more Irish name than Frank <laughs> Ryan, really, could you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Right from right from right from Central Casting. And, you know, all you need is Mother McCree in there. But uh, he, uh, so he, what the one thing is, is the West End gang, uh, they uh, controlled the docks uh, in Montreal. That's a lot of transatlantic uh, ships and whatnot coming into the port of Montreal. Uh, and, the Irish gang or the West End gang controlled the dogs through a guy named Gerald Big Jerry McKittrick. Now, he was responsible for hiring the checkers. Now, these were the guys, and of course, they're all from Point St. Charles, who would check cargo coming in on, 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 these, on these freighters. And, you know, so... You know, you just don't check off the, no. the boxes no. that are, are packed with drugs. So they started doing a massive uh, uh, cocaine business uh, and heroin business and what through sort of, Montreal. What sort of numbers are you talking, Brad? Like, is it, is it? Tons, tons and tons and tons and tons. And largely it was unfettered and, and you know, it was all their own people working on the docks, you know, the control of the longshoremen and the checkers and all that sort of stuff was, you know, run by Big Jerry, uh, uh, you know, McKittrick. And they, uh, so all this stuff's getting in. They control the docks and, you know, the, the Italian mafia in Montreal, which has been long established, had made a play for, uh, for, for the docks, but it, it was a half-hearted play and they realized they had some control. So both um, the, the traditional organized crime and Hell's Angels, which are huge presence in uh, Quebec, uh, particularly Montreal, to get the drugs they needed to sell for their businesses, they had to go through the West End gang. I mean, of course, um, like it's still it's still the way, and we see that, Eamon, you'll see that as well in in Holland and in Belgium. The the people that control the port, really, that is where, uh, in terms of trafficking, that's that's how you control the business, really. Well, yeah, and and you know, Tony Ryan was a was a very generous man, and uh, Big Jerry McKittrick was even more generous, you know, to the point of dressing as Santa Claus and. Point St. Charles during uh, during Christmas, and you know, with you know, widows short on rent, they could always turn to him to do it, and that buys uh, a lot of loyalty in a place like that. There were always jobs for people there, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So it was like a protective wall, and plus the police, uh, you know, were a bit, at a bit of a disadvantage because this wasn't just. Um, uh, a minority it was a minority among a minority because the Anglo community in Montreal is actually quite prosperous except for this community and you know you sort of drop the gates and say it's us against the world and so getting convictions and you know getting any kind of information about the West End gang was virtually impossible and they never had any ambitions beyond Montreal they never you know tried to do business um, 
you know, say in Toronto or in the United States. I mean, and and Dooney Ryan and and uh, you know McKittrick were both very and McKittrick's predecessor Alan Ross were very well uh, thought of uh, among their you know criminal confreres. They uh, you know they had good relationships with the Cali cartel. Uh, you know, the, they know that these guys took care of business and, and, you know, in a, in a, in a somewhat low key manner as well. They weren't, they weren't flashy. They were just, you know, they looked like uh, the guys that worked at General Motors. But that, that, that association with the, the Cali cartel came in, in the nineties and that, that's the boom, the boom time really, isn't it? For when they transformed from people making money from extortion and kidnapping and bank robbery, but where they all of a sudden, that that cocaine boom that came across North America and ultimately to Europe, that put them into a whole other league. And I mean, amazingly, they, I heard they had, I read they had a, a thing called the consortium actually set up to, to manage the various crime groups. Well, that, that's exactly it. And it operated as the uh, same as the... Uh, uh, the commission in the United States, which, you know, for listeners who don't know, it's that was the the overseeing body of, uh, of organized crime in the United States. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, set up in the 1930s and basically it was set up as a police force. For bad guys, a, a, manage, you know, a, man, a, a management structure, Brad. Even like, <laughs> like well, you know, the thing is, is Dooney Ryan and McKittrick, and you'll see. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I've talked talked to a lot of these guys over the years, and the fact is, is you know, one lucky break or one thing going one way or the other, and they're running a Fortune 500 company. I mean, these guys aren't stupid guys. And, and, you know, the West End gang in Canada has, you know, taken on, you know, uh, uh, almost, almost myth. And Canadians are known uh, as apparently uh, very good bank robbers. Uh, you know, no fuss, no muss, no dead. And uh, during the 70s, of course, you know, there were some casualties in Montreal uh, with the bank robberies and whatnot. Uh, I, I, I mean, and Dooney Ryan, who was, you know, the, the visionary of, of the West End gang, he, he got murdered in 1984 by, uh, by uh, a minion. And the, 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 we say that the West End gang's Irish, and that's largely true, but it's also, there's also an element of multiculturalism in there as well. There's people, you know, there's Jews, there's other people, and it's, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a mixed bag. But the guy who uh, the guy who killed Ryan thought that he was going to take over the West End gang and his rackets. It was a guy named Paul April. Now, Alan Ross was uh, Ryan's successor. And so the Hells Angels at the time owed the West End gang a lot of money for uh for uh cocaine that uh that they'd uh, bought and hadn't paid for as yet so they sent their uh um top hitman a, a gentleman named uh eves apache trudeau uh and he delivered uh, the the guy who uh plotted to kill dooney ryan he delivered him a brand new tv to congratulate him uh and uh he also you know included in his package a copy of uh 
the uh, trashy 1967 movie Hell's Angels Forever. Right. And uh, inside the TV was uh, C4 explosives, and and uh, that uh, that took care of that problem. Obviously, like the, the one of the most the, the the remarkable things about the, the the West End Gang was how how far into normal society they managed to corrupt, really, and probably one of the most infamous bits of their story is the fact that one of the heads of the Canadian police uh, who was in charge of investigating this gang was eventually uh, exposed as has taken huge amounts of money for them and ended very tragically for him on a personal level. These guys were very charming, right? They were neighborhood guys. They knew people. They knew how to talk to people. They knew how to bring people around and, you know, uh, a drink becomes a dinner, becomes a trip, becomes an envelope. And, uh, and you know, that was that was their their M.O. And, you know, oddly, they, they charmed other criminals as well. Yeah, I, I was going to ask Brad, like <clears throat> reading back through uh, the West End gang, it's like over six or seven decades they're operating. I mean, it's an incredible longevity for a criminal gang in what I, I'm guessing is a pretty small geographical area. Now, you've already touched on, on some of the reasons why they were almost untouchable. But like, you know, how did they get away with it for so long? I, I, obviously, there's a certain amount of fluidity. There's different individuals are coming and going. But I mean, they, they stayed like, what, what was their real power? Was it the control of the docks? Was it their ability to corrupt police? Was it kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of the steadfast neighborhood people that were sticking beside them through thick and thin? Like, you know, what gave them their power and, and allowed them to last so long? Well, I think it was a combination of two things. One, you know, on a, on a criminal level was the control of the docks. You had to go, you had to go through them to get, you know, if you're going to be moving product in any kind of uh, size, it's got to come in through the port and who controls the port? Well, the West End gang. So you've got to go through them that way. They're, the wall of silence around them was, you know, tremendous, uh, tremendous loyalty, and and one of the 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 long traditions of the gang has been that the gang members are treated very well. Their families are treated very well. You know, moms in the hospital, she might get a visit from Dooney Ryan, and and that sort of thing. And it's just been decades of uh, building up that wall, and also. Uh, underscoring, 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 it's us against the world. We're, you know, we're with you, you know, and you're with us. So, you know, the, the, there's, there's been very, uh, very few leaks. I, I, you know, the five families in New York would be delighted if uh, they had as few leaks as the West End gang. And uh, even, even Brad, like even, even the name, rings a bell for us with the Westies in, in, in and, 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 and Whitey Bulger, who are also obviously called the Irish mob as well. Sure. And, and probably came from a similar background, a similar ways of immigration or emigration from Ireland to, to, to that. Sure. Um, like are, are there similarities and did the, the West End gang retain their, their Irish identity, if you know, or their, did they highlight their Irish background? Like Whitey Bulger, reveled in his 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 background and his irish his irishness was the same thing obvious yes yeah very much so and particularly i mean during the decades uh um uh 
there was a you know a, a Quebec separatist movement. It's you know largely docile and gone at the time, but from you know the early '60s to the mid '70s, uh, or you know to the well, to really till about the early '90s, uh, it was a very you know the the drive from many French Canadians was to have Quebec separate from the rest of Canada. So you're an English minority in this situation. And, you know, I, I mean, it's not, you know, not, not a lot unlike, you know, Northern Ireland and Ireland. So parallels for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, you know, you're in the minority and, you know, you, you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be, you know, draw the wagons as it were, which aided them because, and, and, you know, a lot of jobs, a lot of people uh, left Montreal. A lot of, you know, businesses would just say, no, I, I mean, this uncertainty, you know, that's bad for the stock price. And so very large companies picked up stakes along with tens of thousands of people and moved down the highway to uh, to Toronto. And so these guys are like the foreign legion at DMBN Foo, right? And, 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 you know, that... That kind of, you know, created that tightened, I think, the bonds of, of neighborhood and community. And and they had very you know tight ties with with Whitey Bulger and uh, and the Westies as well at a time for a time. And uh, and yes, you know, they were, you know, very, very much uh, proud of their uh, Irish heritage and uh, weren't. Uh, afraid of reveling in it, uh, you know, in, in <laughs> you know, and sometimes a central casting kind of way. And you know, obviously, with with the, the Westies in the US and some of the other Irish gangs who we've kind of forget in the mid twentieth century and even in the start of the twentieth century, really rivaled the the Italian mafia. But they're more or less gone now in in the US. Uh, well, pretty much, I'm. Oh, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, no, sorry. They're 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 pretty much gone. Is is it the same with the with the with the with in Canada, or do they still exist in that form? There are there are. Uh, I mean, there's still the West End gang, but and they have strong ties with Irish criminals in Toronto. But as far as a gang or a mob or anything like that. You know, that's all pretty much well and done. I mean, you know, Chicago, you don't see it anymore. Cleveland, I mean, Danny Green got blown to bits and that kind of ended the, ended the, that, uh, that there. Whitey Bulger's dead now in Boston. Uh, the Westies are gone. While they say that they're there, but I, th- I think the last time I had a good look at it, I think it's uh, they're being run by a Serbian guy right, now who right. uh, proclaimed that everybody loves the Irish. So, Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's the, the waves of, it, of emigration from Ireland stopped and you, you didn't get those soldiers to keep refilling it, I suppose, is it? Well, it, it's it, and it's the sort of thing. And, I, you know, it's not just really uh, uh, an Irish story as well. I mean, you know, people come over you know, people forget how tough it is to, you know, settle in a new place without, you know, a pot to piss in. And so, I mean, you, you know, my, my family came over from, uh, from Ireland in 1860 or something like that, I think. So a long, a long time, but, you know, you have to hustle here and, and my, you know, I can, you know, my grandfather was, uh, 
you know, he, he was vice president of a, of a large grocery chain. And, uh, you know, he was still hustling cards on Friday nights, like into his into his 60s, because, you know, he'd grown up in the Depression and everything and, uh, you know, came from immigrant parents and that sort of stuff. So he was, you know, I mean, he never forgot not having that money. And I think it's the nature of virtually, uh, you know, any ethnicity in the world to try to cut corners. You know, if if possible, you know, something falls off, uh, you know, a, a turkey falls off a truck. <laughs> sure. And at this point now in, in Canada, like is do 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 the mafia still control stuff? The Hells Angels, are they still the, the dominant forces now that, that control the, the, the cocaine trade? Well, it's it's a very, you know, it's a, kind of a, a, a patchwork map like almost like uh, a, a u.s uh, political map it's you know bits here bits there it's uh, on the east coast it's uh largely the hell's angels uh, you know montreal it's west end gang hell's angels and you know the uh, traditional organized crime the mafia ontario it's hell's angels and and the mafia uh, and and they're they're Strong. I mean, we had a, a just ended, I guess, a couple of years ago or three years ago, almost uh, a war here that lasted for for three years. And there was, you know, about a dozen killings. And it was, you know, a traditional organized crime sort of thing. But as in the U.S., um, the, the traditional organized crime has essentially offloaded their killing to street gangs. It's not you know, uh, you know, it's not great going to jail. And so they pay these guys to do it and then pay somebody else to kill them. But, uh, but it's out West, which I think might be, uh, not a bad segue to our next, uh, yeah. uh, 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 element is, uh, like the lower mainland in British Columbia is you've got the hell's angels there, but you've got two, opposed multicultural gangs in fact one one gang is is called the united nations gang yeah, because because obviously brad this this comes to play for us in ireland because we've been doing uh, stories in the sunday world probably for the last year and a bit about an irish man arrested in in uh, an irish canadian gangster which isn't particularly common but he keeps popping up on our notice because he's on the interpol red notice as an Irish native and right. and his name is Conor de Monte. Now whether he's we have a whether he's ever been to Ireland or not, we're not sure, but he's gone around with an Irish passport. We have a we, in our in our soccer team, there's a thing called the the the, the granny rule where if you had an Irish granny, you could pay for <laughs> you could pay for the Republic of Ireland. So he's something like the organized crime equivalent. But he is he was arrested um last year um, and and I think even the Irish embassy were contacted when he was after being on the run for was right. it was it ten years? Ten years, ten years. Oh no, well, yes, yeah, a little over ten years. Yeah. And could you tell us a bit about his background? And and he was beekeeping amazingly, was he? In in well, it was almost now you know from people I know that that uh, I mean Vancouver's across the country, but. You know, people I know that, uh, you know, cover that uh, have covered the, the gang wars in 
BC extensively, you know, uh, Connor DeMonte was a very erudite guy. He was a smart guy. He was a, generally a nice guy. I mean, there's a, you know, <laughs> at least a few people that don't think he's so nice, but they don't really have the option to uh, voice their opinion on. But so you've got these two opposing groups. One group is called the Red Scorpion Gang. The other group is called the UN Gang. Connor DeMonte was a member of the UN Gang. Now, they made very good contacts with the Sinaloa uh, cartel of, of uh, El Chapo Guzman fame. And at the same time, uh, in British Columbia, the it's I guess for lack of a better description, is uh, uh, we grow the uh, the best weed in the world in British I Columbia. And so the weed goes south, the coke goes north, and uh, and that's basically what it got down to is is a turf war now. The United Nations gang and uh, DeMonte was uh, one of the leader's top lieutenants. And, you know, he's serving 30 years in a U.S. prison in Florida, a guy named Clayton Roosh. Now, Clayton Roosh, growing up, his father was a scrap metal dealer, uh, that sort of thing. But he didn't want to go into that business. He didn't like the dirtiness of it. Uh, but he was fascinated now, he's a white kid, but he's uh, fascinated from an early age uh, of all things Asian. And all his friends growing up were Vietnamese and Laotian and that sort of thing. And, you know, he eventually brought other guys in, including these three brothers called the Bacon Brothers. Yeah, laugh as you will. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, but they flipped to another gang that set up almost the same called the red scorpions. And so they flipped to the other gang and uh, mayhem ensued. Now the Monty is uh, accused of uh, killing a, a, a guy who was a, another turncoat who, who flipped from the UN gang to the red scorpions gang, a guy named Kevin LeClaire. And uh, he was uh, shot to death in uh, 2009 Two years later, police uh, uh, brought uh, charges against DeMonte, and he went on the run, and he vanished. And he, he then he he's he's finally reappeared in is it Puerto Rico, um, where he seems to be. Uh, there's a couple. I saw a couple of pictures of him running a, a beekeeping business. Is that? Well, I, I, that nobody knew anything about that before, but, but you know, I'd become. Somewhat, for a lack of a better description, a beloved local figure. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was, he's due to be extradited now. Um, I don't know if the Irish embassy are getting in, in, involved, but I think there was an extradition hearing even in the last week. Yeah, there's, there's been no result of that as yet, but uh, but I would expect him to get the boot back to Canada like Anytime. Thanks very much, Brad, for 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 detailing all of that, and we'll we'll hopefully speak to you again, uh, particularly about Connor Demonte if he does end up back on in on in Canadian uh, justice system. Terrific, Niles. See you, Eamon. Good talking Thanks. to you, Brad. Have a good day. Bye bye. So, welcome into the studio, Eamon. You're you were previously on Zoom, but you're now in in person. That, yes, uh, I've I managed to figure my way back to the office after several years. Several years of working from home. <laughs> But even more so, the meaning there, I mean, you were in the special criminal court this week for one of the 
one of the the the, the most recent trials that's starting. Yeah, it's this is um, in connection. It's two men charged with the the Lordship Credit Union robbery, which when like it's the tenth anniversary just last um, the twenty fifth of January. So it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since Detective Guard Agent uh, Donahue was, was shot dead, for which a man, um, Agent, um, sorry, Aaron Brady, is serving a 40-year capital murder sentence, a minimum 40-year uh, life sentence. Uh, but these, these are two co-accused with the robbery. Now, uh, Brady was, was, um, was convicted of robbery. He got a 14-year sentence, and there's been kind of an ongoing investigation to, to pick up uh, the rest of the alleged members of the gang. So, so, Brendan, like if we, so if we go back to the robbery, I mean, uh, what happened, obviously, Adrian, uh, Detective Dunahoo was killed, but he had been he had been brought to the Lordship Credit Union, I think, to monitor the, the movement of money, basically. Was that right? Yeah, he, he was there to provide armed protection, which is, you know, it used to be pretty common, you know, uh, you know, years ago during the troubles, uh, when there was, there was, and, and also then in in the south when there was kind of a, a lot of armed, I suppose, fundraising robberies going on, um, and and it wasn't unusual certainly to see um, uh, soldiers, and that that was all phased out over the years, um, and then there are there's more kind of discreet uh, sort of plainclothes guard uh, escorts of, of of some cash escorts now, um, and and this is it was pretty much a routine thing. Now, like one of the things that emerged was, uh, like in in the hearing today, was that the Lordship Credit Union had actually been robbed in 2011, and 22,000 was stolen. So obviously, it was seen as a, a particular, um, I suppose, a soft target or a vulnerable target. Being so close to the border, it was easy for mobile mobile criminals to either, you know, reach the the motorway system and head south, or use the back roads to get into the north, into South Armagh, which, as we know, was always kind of the heartland of of a number of of you know, um, criminal-related gangs who I suppose would have had a Republican leaning. And of course, it, it 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 poses a policing problem, doesn't it, when criminals move across the border, and which they can move across a number of times in, in, in you know, straight away over the space of an hour. And in theory, the police forces have to interact. Uh, yeah. and Absolutely, and and this came up in the in in the opening statement in the special criminal court on Thursday. Um, there was photographs shown. It was aerial pictures of the the burned out car that was used. Uh, to block the the car park during the robbery, and this was taken from it was PSNI helicopter. So this kind of shows you the difficulties the PSNI still have, you know, uh, working in these areas at that time. Um, but it also showed again there was the cooperation going on uh, between the two forces at the time. Uh, there was other there's other evidence that was was talked about in the opening statement that's going to be put forward, such as um, uh, you, 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 there was CCTV of one of the accused men, James Flynn, um, taken um, I think at. at, at uh, Belfast International Airport. So I mean, it's very much what what the, the what they're actually charged with is is the robbery, but also uh, they're also charged with conspiracy to steal cars, and they've gone through a whole series of of burglaries that happened in in Cavan, um, in Monaghan, Westmeath, in, in various places, and there was quite a number. I think it was like eight or nine separate burglaries and about about eight cars taken, and they're described and, as. Creeper burglaries for some reason. Yeah, in yeah. What the, what's that sort of Cre- creeper burglaries are, are basically? I mean, it's 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 skillful enough. Um, I think uh, kind of crime to carry out. It's certainly not n- unique to this particular gang of which these two men are alleged to be members of. And it's basically somebody pops the lock on on a back door or front door, and they literally creep in, have a look for the car keys, you know, access the car, then push it away far far enough away from the house to start the engine, and the homeowner isn't aware that their car has been stolen or their house has been broken into until they wake up the next day. And and this was literally in in the cases that are being put forward by the prosecution. This is exactly you know what happened. 
Um, and it only came to an end then with the theft of the VW and Clotter Head um, a couple of days before the robbery, which they're now using as, as part of the evidence against these two men to suggest that they were involved in the robbery because they were very much part of this conspiracy to steal cars, the last of which was the one that was used in, in, the, in the credit union robbery. I mean, it's, it's, um, it, I mean, it's an incredibly meticulous, um, I suppose, uh, in, investigation in that the CCTV from, you know, it's, it's between September, uh, from September 2012 to January uh, 2013, and just been, they, they've pieced together so much CCTV and then matched it with mobile phone accounts to try and, you know, show the movements. And as as the, the Lorcan Staines, uh, the prosecution counsel for the state said, they couldn't link, there isn't the evidence isn't there to link any one individual to any one of these burglaries. It's all circumstantial, circumstantial. but that if all these fine threads are wound together, he says, by the volume, that there should be enough there to prove their guilt and admits that there isn't a thick thread of evidence. No, because you're not, you're not going to see uh, DNA evidence, you're not going to see that, that type of witness placing them directly at these scenes of the crime. It's it's very much a kind of a modern policing case, isn't it, that we're, that we're seeing more and more in recent times where mobile phone traffic, which can be very technical, I, I presume some of it, is it? Yeah, there was a dizzying amount of uh, phone records that were, were put up on screen in court on Thursday. And it was kind of, I think, uh, the prosecution's case is that the sheer volume of, 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 of this is going to, you know, it's... Is, is persuasive of the guilt of the two men who are accused of this conspiracy. Um, and then again, they link it to, in, in what they admit as well, is, is you know, some very, in, some, in, in many cases, fairly low quality CCTV. Uh, like it's, some of it is interesting in, in that one particular incident where they go through, it's, it's uh, James Flynn when he left his house, his home, Dunroman House, which is two, a two minute drive from Lordship. There's one day he left there, went to a nearby filling station and it was literally to show him at the filling station and then to produce the phone records. And that was described in court as a quality control exercise to show that here's his phone pinging off these various masks. Here he is on CT, CCTV. And then there's a couple of other, there, there, there's lots of other circumstantial evidence that the, the, the prosecution are going to put forward. Uh, a key to it is James Flynn's uh, car had, had a modified roof with this vinyl on top, which the light shines slightly differently off it than it would uh, another car. So even though it's a poor quality image of a car, you know, they're, they're making, they're going to make the case that this is the car. This is most likely James Flynn's car. Um, his phone was pinging off a mass at such a, such a time, which is another circumstantial you know, uh, a piece of evidence as well. So this is this is what they're, they're, they're trying to prove, um, and of course, then the, their their own lawyers. Then I think they're trying to separate the two charges. So they're both uh, Brendan Trainer and James Flynn are both charged with identical charges: the conspiracy to steal the cars and the robbery of, of the Lordship Credit Union. And their lawyers have now argued that they want to separate these two charges. It should be two different trials. Uh, and that decision is going to come back on Tuesday. So we'll see then what the, the judges are going to do with that. I mean, the, 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 what would be the advantage, I suppose, from, from their perspective is that the, the, they can't place them all together in terms of the, the one thing leads to another. Is that the, 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 the argument the defence are going to make? That? I, I would imagine so, because the, the prosecution, like, talk about while the phones were live in, in, in some of the, most of the burglaries, uh, they went, they, as they try to say, it, they significantly all went dead at the same time for, you know, a period of about two hours. Um, 
before the robbery and then come more or less come back online at more or less the same time, except for one phone uh, belonging to Brendan Trainer, which was never reactivated again after a certain time. I think there was there was one attempted phone call and then it was never used again. Um, and 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 his his I think argument or his case there is that he was washing the dogs and it fell into the bath. And this is a statement he gave to the guards at the time. So I mean, this is all the the opening statement yeah. so far. Uh, from from the prosecution, so this is what's going to be argued over, um, and it's a trial that could last two months or longer. So you can imagine the amount of information. There's a number of witnesses um, that there's, you know, all, all these strands. Some of them are backed up by by witnesses. Obviously, some of it's technical. So this is all going to be questioned, um, and, and some of it, like like for instance, there there is one there was one of the burglaries where there was uh, documents belonging to the car were found partially burned in in a chalet where where um, Aaron Brady was living with another man who who isn't before the courts, um, uh, and this is all again you know it's it doesn't involve Trainer or Flynn. Like, but at the same time, they're trying to show the association. I mean, they make the, the the prosecution are making the point that Aaron Brady and James Flynn lived in each other's pockets was the way they de- yeah. described it. They stayed in in uh, James Flynn's father's house the night before the robbery. I mean, there's, there's times when all three of these men who are accused of being part of this gang where, you know, they, they ate together in, in the Flynn house. The, you know, James Flynn's mother cooked him a chicken curry one night. And all of this is to show, like, that there's a lot of substantial contact between this group, that it's very unlikely that if one of these guys was involved in, in, in crime, that the others, at the very least, didn't know about it or did something to help. And, and this is the argument the prosecution is trying to put forward. And Aaron Brady's family, of course, have, have been in court, have they, at times? Yeah, well... It, Aaron, Aaron Brady's father, Tony, was 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 in court this week, as was uh, Eugene Flynn Sr., James Flynn's um, uh, father. E- Eugene Flynn Sr. has his own colourful history. He's a convicted diesel launderer, um, and he's had to have he, he had some fairly large settlements with the with the UK authorities. This is uh, going back twenty years. Uh, and then, of course, James James Flynn himself, when he was uh, being extradited back from the UK before uh, he. The, the, the hearing was finalized. He sought bail in the UK and there was an offer of, of very substantial amounts of, of, of uh, bail money, including an independent surety of over the equivalent of a million euro. So uh, I, they, and uh, you know, it, it's going to be every, every spit and cough is going to be fought in this case. There's no doubt about it, as it was with, you know, in Aaron Brady's trial, yeah, as we saw it, which is their right, of course, but it's going to be, it's going to be a hard case. And of course, as we know, Aaron Brady and another man are also charged with intimidating witnesses in that case and that's been put back to next year now after his appeal I mean the Aaron Brady's family have run a, a kind of a very public campaign to to you know on on, on social media to discredit the the, the Garda investigation or the, the 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 verdict of the jury are, are they uh, so they obviously have an interest in in what hearing what's said here yeah, there is an overlap of evidence. I mean, certainly all the all the information about the the creeper burglaries that that is new. But in terms of you know the the witness uh, statements, there's a, s- a small number of witness statements. Um, there's also some of the CCTV footage and and, and and the phones. That's that was that was already heard. Some of it was already or versions of it were already heard in Aaron Brady's uh, trial uh, for, for the murder of uh, Agent Donahue. But um, again, it's it, it's a separate. It is a completely separate case. The, these two men aren't charged with that murder. No. Um, but I mean, it's the idea that it's, it's going on ten years. It's it's incredible to think. 
uh, that these guys, the, like Aaron, Aaron Brady was 21 at the time, and, and these, these co-accused uh, gentlemen are, were 24 and 22, I think, at the time. They were really young guys. Um, and if, if the prosecution case is proven true, like you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, an incredibly active gang at a, in a, at a young age, uh, car carrying out fairly sophisticated, you know, what I would consider professional crime. I mean, you're going out there stealing, um, you know, relatively new cars like a Toyota Avensis, Alfa Romeo, um, a Land Cruiser, a, a, a Mercedes e, E220. I mean, this is all, you, you know, at, at the very at the very basic level, there, there are people out there who will take a car off you for a thousand euro in cash. I mean, that's if you're somebody with no great connections, you know, according to various sources that have spoken yeah. to the Sunday world over the year. So, I mean, if, if, if people are slightly better connected, they're going to do more than that. So, I mean, th these... These uh, burglaries, as described by by the prosecution, if you know, shows it's, it's the activity of a pretty organised, sophisticated, uh, to a level, um, crime gang that were involved in in making money and and were organised. I mean, obviously, they never thought that they were going to attract this sort of attention that they did in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, as I said, it's a very modern policing case, and you're seeing these coming before the special criminal court, in particular, again and again, where. Uh, CCTV and mobile phone evidence has just become like if you go back, I remember the first case, the Joe O'Reilly case, where they introduced a, a, a CCTV of a car, and it was revolutionary that that this could convict somebody. But it's just become so so normal now. Um, and how long how long is this? It's two months. It'll be expected to last. Is yeah, it? it was two months. I think it was initially marked down for four months. So I, I mean, to be honest, we, we're not quite sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's there's going to be so much argument. Presumably, then there's also going to be legal arguments. Uh, the fact that it's it's not in front of a jury probably allows it to be a little bit quicker, just in terms of the the physical nature of getting a jury in and out gives more a little bit more time for for you know the arguments to be aired in court every every day uh, it means that if if there's a legal argument to be made they don't have to stop everything wait for the jury to come out wait for them to come back in so there will be elements of saving a couple of hours per week as it goes on but it's 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 a long complex uh, case and and you know as the prosecution put it there's a lot of thin strands which they're depending on that the volume is going to is going to work for their case so uh, Obviously, the the defence are going to try and unpick as many of those thin strands of evidence Absolutely. as they can. And it's not dissimilar to other cases where they have to, in, in order to build a circumstantial case, you have to put together piece by piece by piece, and that has to then be proven to, beyond reasonable doubt, build up into an overall picture of guilt. Obviously, the defence, the men have pleaded not guilty, they've been definitive about that, and they're going to say that you, you can pick out little bits of evidence but it doesn't add up to the whole, um, I would imagine. So that's from from one case. Uh, but this week as well, um, we had some of our old favourites, Eamon, that we've been uh, that you've probably written about for the last twenty years. Really, I would have thought reappeared um, in quite of. I is, suppose, that, is that a reference to my age? It's about, no, years. no, Eamon, because you're you're only you're only a. Uh, maturing with grace <laughs> but uh, well 20 years might even be uh, being favourable to you I think because it, actually it, could, in <laughs> it could be approaching slightly longer the, yes. Yeah, yes so we're talking yeah. about um, obviously uh, Scott Delaney also known as Scott Knight and Wayne Bradley two people who who have been graced the pages of the Sunday world for a long period of time 
And this week popped up again in connection with the anti-immigration protests that were seen sparked up across Dublin, um, across Ireland probably, but certainly across Dublin. And these are two criminals that have have tied their colours to the mast, if you want, and have have backed these protests. What do we know first about about Scott Delaney? Scott Delaney, I suppose, he, he came to fame, uh, for lack of a better word, notoriety, I guess. Yeah. Um, with the, the murder of Marco Marco Dwyer, he, one of his one of his pals at the time, uh, and it was over a missing stash of of um, of ecstasy tablets, and it was carried out by Joe Cottonai Delaney, his uh, Scott's father. Um, it was significant, I guess, if anyone's familiar with it. It was a, a pretty grotesque. Uh, torture and then murder and then Scott himself was beaten and left unconscious beside his, his friend's dead body in in a bid to kind of throw off the scent uh, I, I, and it was also one I think it was one of the first cases where the there was a successful prosecution in what was a gangland murder so yeah. it was significant in that regard as well and it's only it's only in, in recent days Scott Knight Joe you know has come out of prison and Scott Knight as, as he's now called uh, you know, he, he recently himself appeared on a couple of podcasts, you know, talking about his time as a, an ecstasy dealer. He was one of the best. He loves talking about the beautiful drug dealers, I think was his, his phrase, <laughs> which I, mean, I think you found very amusing. Well, I mean, but, I uh, suppose Scott Delaney really was one of the first people to become a mass uh, wholesaler of, of ecstasy in Dublin. Um, he would have been, you know, well known in clubs like like sides in the asylum back in Dublin when the, the rave scene first started and he, he hit the boom time and made lots and lots of money. Um but obviously his 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 crime days came to an end with that case, which was really quite horrific and and uh you know the probably one of the first ecstasy related gangland murders really I suppose at the time. Um but he subsequently ended up I think in the UK for a period of time and Yeah and and we actually, uh, one of our colleagues, or I'm not sure if it was you, Niall, but uh, certainly somebody wrote a piece about him in, in uh, 2011. Uh, I remember reading at the time, it was kind of uh, kind of wondering what's going on there. But it basically linked him with the uh, the English Defence League and the British National Party, which are, of course, a, you know, a very far right uh, party. And I think he, he spoke to one of our colleagues and said something along the lines of, well, you know, if... if, if uh, you know, I couldn't see any problem with the Irish being repatriated out of Ireland or back to Ireland if that's what the British people wanted. So, so you know, it was kind of a, a strange thing to be involved in. His name was linked to that. It was anti-fascist hackers or, or somebody on the inside basically published the membership of the BNP at the time. And, and there who was... Are, who are traditionally anti-Irish, of course. like a, yeah, Very know. much so, yeah, yeah. Like, and probably Catholic and everything else. But... Uh, Look, I mean, it's 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 one of these bizarre things that here here you have this uh, you know this former Irish drug dealer who now pops up as a member of the BNP in Manchester, you know, agreeing with their topics and then obviously agreeing to go home if if they want to send them. I mean, there was a couple of comments from at the time. This is don't forget now, twenty eleven. You know, having a in, in a way kind of I suppose pushing at this great replacement uh, theory that you know there's there's hordes of of uh, non-white, non-Christians coming to take our, our, our place here in Europe. Uh, and then he, he's back up again this week now on TikTok, and he's, he's appealing people to join the far-right National Party. Um, he's talking about, you know, if everybody in gangland gets involved, he's, that's, you know, and all their families, that's 30,000 people. It'll give, you know, the party a great boost, and uh, presumably then they can, they can get to work fulfilling their, their dream of a, a, a beautiful white Irish country. And of course, uh, Wayne Bradley as well was was t- 
tweeting in support of the the protests, particularly in in Finglas this week, which were quite tense by all accounts from the people who were there. There was, you know, it's it's they're, 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 they were very heavily policed to say the least. I mean, Wayne Bradley again would have been appearing in 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 the Sunday World for twenty years because of his association, along with his brother Alan Fatpus Bradley, which uh, Eamon the Don done and and a certain number of of armed robberies that were occurring in that part of the city. Yeah, and 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 in a way, I think Wayne Bradley is is coming from a different place than Scott Knight. Even you know what he, what he's quoted as as saying on social media. You know, he, like I mean, he's obviously swallowed some of the, you know, the the misinformation about um, n- non-Irish nationals or you know foreign people attacking Irish women, that sort of thing. But like he, he was talking about, you know, uh, don't bring any weapons to the to protest. We got to show them all it's peaceful, and you know, he was trying to make it look like there there was a, a genuine concern there, and 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 being relatively responsible as opposed to you know talking about storming a building and kicking people out or anything like that. Uh, but I mean, they would have always had a record, I think, of uh, of trying to portray themselves uh, in in the Robin Hood class of criminals. This is, this is the, you know, the, the, trying to show that they're part and parcel of the community. I mean, there was the famous uh, video years ago of the guys pretending. I think they had they they had a a, a secondhand um, security cash van and were driving around with pretending money was blown out of the back of it to catch people's reaction. This is all a bit of a laugh. You know they're they're kind of jolly bank robbers, really. You know they're not they're not you know, I, I guess evil heroin dealers. No. So I mean, look, it's it just shows you kind of the wide collection of people who are, are are I suppose being sucked into this sort of conspiracy theories that are knocking about at the moment. Yeah, and it does. I mean, the, the Wayne Bradley ultimately they got to prison for I think it was a nine year sentence eventually for conspiracy to rob a, 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 a cash and transit van. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, things are the 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 protests really have stepped up, and I suppose some of the addition of 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 these people can can give it a, a sort of a maybe a, a, a you know a, a, a more sinister touch, really, can it? it? It can do, and I mean, and don't forget as well. I mean, traditionally, you know, across you know France, Germany, Belgium, and places like that, where you have sort of far right violence it's often a recruiting ground ground it's where you know you can find young fellas who are able to handle themselves who aren't frightened of the police keep their mouth shut when they're arrested and all of a sudden you know they're they'd be useful idiots for for guys who are involved in serious crime so i mean like in that regard you know as well as portraying yourself as a robin hood it's also a handy place to come and find some potential new recruits some you know useful people that will be able to carry out of course, the Brad the Bradleys had always uh, taken on that role of them for themselves to a degree of of police in the community, and people had turned to them, and there have been uh, incidents like that reported in the past. Um, so, look, it's it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. I think for us, and you know, with the the, the scenes this week, they are they aren't they are quite scary. I think to to an extent, you know, things that could happen. Um, when you see videos of people saying "burn them out" and and things like that, it's not it's not nice. No, and I think to some extent, and and you can say it's the political class and even ourselves in the media, we're a bit complacent, thinking that you know the far right, you know the, the extreme far right, won't really get much traction in, in Ireland because they hadn't up to that point. I mean. I mean, the simple reason is that we were an exporter of our own people rather than you know uh, bringing in immigrants. And I mean, 
I mean, even even when you look at the numbers, I mean, it's 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 actually quite small. I mean, the misinformation out there is 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 off off the wall, and I mean, even like like some of the people that we're talking about now, because the fact that we're talking about them, some other right wing extremists are now going to say, well, they're obviously Garda Stooges. Yeah, you know, they're obviously you know infiltrated the 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 movement to try and uh, just you know to. Uh, to, to undermine their efforts, you know, and, and the, the, all this kind of narrative is going on, you know, constantly on social media. It's, it's and it's, and, and to think it's happening is it, it is it is definitely worrying. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't like to be in in some of those places where there have been protesters out. And again, you know, it's it's important. And I think it was said by government ministers this week. We're not we're not going to ban protests because you can't ban protests just because you don't like what they're saying. No, I, I but think- you can't have them. Yeah. making threats to burn people or to attack people. No, I think the scariest or the, the most worrying thing is the fact that there are ordinary people, and I know of some of them who have become involved in this protest movement, and they're really being sucked in by misinformation, you know, that these are ordinary people and people probably with good motives, and they're getting sucked in by, by you know, which really is the oldest trick in the book, which is 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 crime hysteria, like, you know, hysteria about about immigrants attacking women and things like that that haven't proved to be true. Yeah, and of course, we're we're tied as well by, you know, the rules, the laws are liable, like we can only go so far. So you, you'll often see posted up like, you know, why aren't mainstream media naming this guy? And then, of course, it's a link to a piece that we've actually written, yeah. you know, and and then, you know, a week later when we can name them for, for you know, the, it's gone through the court system or, you know, we can now legally do it. You know, again, it's the same thing. You know, how come mainstream media haven't picked up on this? And again, it's a link to RTE or the Irish Times or the Irish Independent or the Sunday World. So, I mean, some people don't want to, they don't want to see the truth when it's no. batting them in the, the middle of their face. No, we did get an email saying, why don't the Sunday World report on sex offenders? And I thought, God, you really don't read the <laughs> Sunday World. But but anyway, Eamon. Um, well, thanks very much, Eamon. Uh, it's great to have you here and to see you in person after all this working from home. Yep, hopefully I won't get lost now on the way out. Hopefully not. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.